and as we look at this feast, he begins to tell us who we are in light of who he is. So with that in mind, let's look together. Luke 22, verses 7 through 20. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The gospel of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of this, his word? Father, uh, to whom can we go? But to you and to your word, for they are the words of everlasting life. We're thankful that you're not hidden or silent, but you make yourself known. And so we pray now in these few moments as we think about your word that you would attend unto it and you would teach us and you would give us life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I love my children. Uh, they're getting older and I often really miss when they were little, when they were younger. And one of the things that I miss, I still love you. I mean, it's not that, it's just when you were little bitty, it was really uh, different. And um, uh, because you're not little bitty anymore. Not that you're large, but you know what I'm saying. And, uh, and so anyway, but uh, what I used to really love was reading these picture books with my children because as we'd read through these picture books, like we'd, I'd read the story and they would want to look at the pictures and then they'd be able to point and they'd be able to describe what was happening. And then later on, we would be able to sit on the beanbag or sit on, on the bed with one another and then they could tell me the story through the pictures, right? And as we look at these picture books, it's, it's not that the words aren't enough and it's not that like hearing the story isn't enough, but it's through the pictures, Right, that the story gets retold, and not only retold, the story also gets reinforced. Now, if you've been around Christianity for a while, you've probably heard uh, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, described as visible words. That, that baptism and the Lord's Supper are these visible words, or they're these illustrations of God's story. And I love to think about the sacraments in these ways. I love to think about these visible words because it's through the sacraments that God's story becomes made visible. 
And I think that this is a grace of God. This is a kindness of God because God our Father wants us, his children, to know him. And so he has told us about himself in a variety of ways. He's told us about himself through his uh, actions in history. He's told us about himself through his word. But we aren't a people who only learn through hearing and through reading. We are also a people who learn, right, by experiencing, by seeing, by smelling, by tasting, by touching. And that is what God does for us through the sacraments. He is retelling his story and he reinforces it through these visible, tangible words that we call the sacraments. I mean, think about baptism. I mean, you literally feel the cleansing work of God as the water rolls down your neck. And as you come to the Lord's Supper and you take the bread and you take the wine and you can smell it and you can taste it and you touch it, right? The, the story, the gospel Right? The work of God becomes tangible. Right? And God's story is something that's not just supposed to be heard and kind of intellectually understood, but, but the story of God is supposed to be taken into our bodies. It's supposed to impact our entire lives. And so later on in the service, as we all stand around these tables, we'll stand around these tables and we will hold the gospel in our hands. Maybe you'll roll the bread around and make it, you know, nice and, you know, compact. Maybe you'll, like, take the cup and you'll swish it around and uh, you'll ingest the story of God into your body such that in many ways the story becomes a part of us. And so this morning, as we think about these feasts, I want us to think about the Lord's Supper because it's in the Lord's Supper that God is retelling and reinforcing his story. That he is a God who has always been faithful. And he is a God who always will be. And I think that this is one of the things that is really unique about Christianity. Because in almost every other religion, uh, God is faithful to those who are faithful and so in most religions, right, it is uh, the humans, it is us who are the primary givers, that we are the ones who then offer the sacrifices. We are the ones who offer our blood, our sweat, and our tears. We are the ones who must have successful, well-ordered, and put-together lives in order for God to be faithful. But there's no other God like the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is a God who gives himself to his people. He always has, and he always will. And that's the story of God that we eat, and we drink, and we hear. That is the story of God that we feast upon as we come to the Lord's Supper. That God has been faithful, and he always will be. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning. One thing, the Lord's Supper, and we'll think about it in two ways. That, the, that God has always been faithful, and he always will be. So let's first think about the story of God, that he has always been faithful. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, we do this together, and we do this, as verse 19 tells us, in remembrance of Jesus. And so what I want you to hear here is that the supper is fundamentally about Christ. It is about what he has done. The supper is not so much about us. 
It's not so much about what we are doing or what we are feeling in the moment, nor is it specifically about the bread and the wine. It is only about the bread and the wine in that the bread and the wine are sacramental, meaning that they are signs, meaning that they point beyond themselves to Jesus. So that we come to this table, the point is Christ, the point is Jesus, and the point is that he gave his body, he gave his blood for us. And so as we come to the table, we are being reminded that it is Jesus who was faithful to die for his people. And when you come to the table and you look at the bread and you look at the wine, you are reminded that it should have been your body. It should have been your blood that was poured out. But instead, God has been kind, he's been gracious, he's been faithful to give himself for us. And so as we come to the table, we don't come to the table bringing all of our successes. And we don't come bringing all of our failures. We come remembering Jesus. We come with thanksgiving that in Jesus, we are actually welcomed by God. And this is why many traditions call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist, which means giving thanks. Now, to understand what Jesus was doing in the institution of the Lord's Supper, we've got to remember uh, the context of the institution, right? We've got to remember that he sets up this table, he gives us this meal uh, at the Passover. And so as you read the text that we've just read, we see that five times in our passage that they're at the Passover. You see it in verse 7, verse 8, verse 11, verse 13, verse 15. And so there they are at the Passover feast. And it tells us that this was Jesus' earnest desire to eat the meal with them before he suffered. And what this is saying is that Jesus longed to have this meal with his apostles, with his disciples. And he longed to have this final meal with them because he loved them. But I think more importantly, he longed to have this meal with his disciples before he suffered so that they might understand his suffering. So that they might actually begin to understand what he is doing for them because he will be going to the cross in the next couple days to die for their sins, to be resurrected, that his people might be new, that his people would be forgiven, that his people would be received before the Father. And so he gives them this meal to help them understand what he's doing. And so to understand the, the death of Jesus, to understand this meal, we've got to understand it in light of the Passover. And so what Jesus does is he gathers his disciples together and they're eating the Passover. And this is important because the Passover meal was the most important meal of the Jewish calendar. It was the meal where they would gather and they would retell the story of God's salvation and how God had been kind and how he'd been faithful to his covenant to deliver his people from their slavery in Egypt. And now he had come and he had brought them out of that slavery and he was bringing them in to the promised land. And so every year they would gather and every year through the meal they would retell the story. And so they would eat the lamb and they would eat the bread and they would drink the wine of the covenant. And as they would gather in the rooms for the meal, they would bring in the lamb, they'd bring in the bread, they'd bring in the wine, they'd bring in the bitter herbs. And the youngest child at the feast would ask this question. And he would say, why do we eat these foods on this night? 
And then what the father would do is he would begin to retell the story of salvation, and he would retell it through the salt. And he'd talk about the salt and how it reminded them of their tears. And he'd talk about the bitter herbs and how it reminded them of their bitterness of slavery. And then he'd talk about the lamb, which reminded them of the sacrifice that was given for them, and the blood, which is represented in the wine. And so as he talks about the Passover, he's reminding them, like, remember how God has been faithful to save you. He's saying, remember on that night when, when God's judgment passed over Egypt. And remember how God had said to you, distinguish between you and the Egyptians. Take a lamb and kill it on behalf of the firstborn of every home. And then you'll take that blood and you'll put it on your doorpost. And when the angel of God passes over Egypt, he will see you, he will see the blood, and everyone who is in the blood will then be saved. And that evening, the angel of God passes over, protecting the people of Israel, enacting his judgment upon Egypt, and then delivering the people of God from their oppressors. And then as they're about to eat, the father would then lift up the bread and he would say something like we see in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. This is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover. And again, as he lifts up the bread, he is reminding them that in the midst of your affliction, that in the midst of your need, that God will feed you. That God will provide for you. That God is the God who delivers you. And then after that statement, Jesus then, verse 19, took the bread and when he'd given thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he's saying, I'm the bread of your affliction. What Jesus is saying is, I am now the one who is going to work a new salvation. I will become your affliction. I will become the one who is oppressed. I will become the one who is afflicted. I am the one who will be burdened and enslaved so that you might be set free. And so what Jesus is doing is amazing. He's saying, I am now your salvation. I will be afflicted. I will be broken so that you might be made whole. And then verse 20, he takes the cup and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so what Jesus is doing is he's continuing to use the Passover meal to explain himself and uh, to help them understand. And so he's saying, I'm not only the bread, but I'm also the wine. And so as you would drink the wine, you would remember the blood of the lamb who was sacrificed, who was given as a substitute for the sins of the people. And so year after year, as they would remember the Passover, as they would remember God's great work of salvation, they would remember that the lamb stood in their place. And the Israelites knew that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. And so every year, these lambs are sacrificed. And every year, as they drink the blood and think of the blood, they are reminded of God's salvation. And in this moment, what Jesus is now saying to his people, I'm the blood. There's no more need for the sacrifices. I am the blood. I will die. My blood will be shed so that you will be forgiven, so that you will live. But even more, notice what Jesus says. He says that the wine is the new covenant in my blood. 
Now, if you read the Bible, uh, one of the things you'll notice is that blood is often associated with covenants, and it would talk about the cutting of covenants. And if you remember last week, we talked about what a covenant is, and a covenant is essentially a promised relationship. And so two parties are promising to be in relationship, and they're promising to live with one another in particular ways, much like we do in marriage. If you stood up and got married to somebody, you made these promises, right? Each of you made promises to one another to honor and keep you, to love and to cherish in sickness and in death and poverty and wealth until we are parted by death, right? These promises, these covenant promises that you make for one another or to one another. Well, if you read the Bible, you'll know that covenants are made throughout the scriptures and there's this original covenant, I mean, maybe the creation of the creational covenant, but that's a, that's a different discussion. Anyway, but the, the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, and when he made that covenant with Abraham, when God made the covenant with Abraham, he made this promise. He said, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll be the God of your children. I'll, give, I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you a great land. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will be a blessing to you and to your children. And you will become a blessing to the world. When that covenant was made, Abraham then took some animals. And he like cut them in half. Because that's what you did when you cut a covenant. You would take the animals and you'd rip them apart. And you'd put one half of the carcass on one side, you put another half of the carcass on the other side, and then the two parties would walk through the middle of the animals as if to say, if one of us break this covenant, that's what happens to us. And so before Abraham uh, was to walk through these carcasses, right, you can imagine the smell and the flies and the blood and the flesh, uh, just for fun. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, you can imagine these things. And just before Abraham's about to walk through these things, God uh, puts Abraham to sleep. And Abraham falls into this deep sleep. And then God, by himself, walks through the animals. As if to say, I will fulfill this covenant for both of us. I will be your God. You will be my people, no matter what. And over and over again throughout the Bible, we see God drawing near to his people, and we see God saving his people because they are the children of the promise. Like you'll hear God say things like, I will save you on account of Abraham. I will deliver you because I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is why God had saved Israel from Egypt. Not because Egypt was good. Not because they were righteous. Not because they were moral. Not because they were strong. Not even because they were oppressed. He saved them because they were the children of Abraham. God saved them because he promised to be their God. And here's one of the sad things about the Bible, uh, is that even though God has been faithful to his covenant promises throughout history, uh, we, his covenant people, have not been. 
And over and over again, we have constantly broken the covenant. Over and over again, we have turned our backs on our faithful covenant-keeping God. And over and over again, our, our God's heart is broken by our rebellion. Because God's heart, God's desire is for us, right? For his people to love him. Right? God longs for his people to love him and to love his ways. And so one of the kindnesses of God is that he promised to make a new covenant. And you see it in places like Jeremiah and you see it again in Ezekiel. And when he makes this promise to make a new covenant, it's not a new covenant with respect to content. He reiterates the same content saying, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, you'll be a blessing. But it's a new covenant with respect to empowerment. In which he says, I will pour out my spirit upon my people. And the power of God will be at work in them. And I will be at work in them. And I will make them new. So that my people will begin to reciprocate my love. So that my people might love me in return and so that my people might become the blessing to the world that I have made. And so when Jesus says here in verse 20, this is the new covenant in my blood, he is saying that just as God saved Israel because of his promise to Abraham, he is saying, I will save you. And I will save you through my blood. And just as your stomach will be filled by eating and drinking, I will now fill you with myself. I will fill you with my spirit so that you might be strengthened to walk in my loving ways. And so what the supper is telling us is that God has always been faithful. He has always been faithful to his covenant promises and he always will be. Right, the supper reaches back into the past and it lays hold of the covenant, but it doesn't just go backwards. The supper also reaches forward into the future. I want you to notice that two times in this passage, uh, he talks about a future meal. You see it in verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He says it again in verse 18. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so what Jesus is saying is that this meal is really just the beginning. That this meal actually serves as a promise that one day there will be a greater meal. And so every day, every Sunday as we gather around these tables and as we drink the, the, the wine and we eat the bread, it is God's promise to us that there is a greater feast to come. And it will be a feast when it's not just a pinch of bread. And it will be a feast that's not just a thimble of wine. But it will be a feast of abundance. It will be that great messianic feast that God has always promised for his people. It will be that feast when God will dwell with his people. And he will eat with his people once again in glory. And so as we eat the meal, God is promising to us that his story isn't over. 
Right? He, he's, he's reminding us that there is more to come. Praise the Lord for that, right? That, that where you are right now is not the end of the story. That your experience with God is not the end of the story. Because if we're honest, the world in which we live is a brutal place. This is a tough world in which we live. I mean, you saw it this weekend with the shootings and the tears and the crying. We live in a violent country. We live in a violent world. And it is overwhelming and it just keeps coming. It doesn't stop. And it brings tears. It hurts our hearts. It hurts our bodies. It hurts our friends. It destroys families. It creates chaos in the world. And we are sick of it. We're tired of it. And when we come to the meal, God is saying, this is not the end. I will return and I will do something about this. And of course we come. And of course we rejoice that God is our God. And of course we rejoice that we're his people. But if you are a Christian... You long for a day when this is not merely by faith, but you will begin to see these things by sight. I mean, do you not want to see Jesus? Do, do you not want to see his kingdom spread from shore to shore? Do you not want to see him reigning over all the earth? Do you not want him to come and look you in the eye and dry your tears? Do you not want him to come and put an end to the suffering? Do you not want to once again walk with him in the glory and the beauty and the safety of his creation? That's what we long for. And when you come to this meal, that is what Jesus is promising you. He is promising you his presence once again. And we long for that day. When the triumphant king comes and rids this world of oppression and injustice, we long for the day when the triumphant king and loving, faithful savior will come and he will rid the world of sickness and sorrow and pain and death. We long for the day when he will dry our tears. We long for the day when our wounds will be healed. We long for the day when our sadness gives way to song and our loneliness becomes a party uh, and our emptiness is filled and our fragility is made strong and that which is temporary becomes permanent, and that which is death becomes life. That's the Christian hope. And that is the promise of Jesus, and we have not experienced it yet. And if you are ever like me, it is easy in the midst of this world to become discouraged, to become angry, and to doubt. To begin even to lose faith that God is faithful. And then Jesus invites us to come to his table, to come to this supper. And it's at this supper that we are reminded that the story of God is not complete. He has not finished what he has promised to do. And so every week we physically put bread and wine into our mouth. And that is God's promise to you. That he has not forgotten that he has not forgotten his promises. And as you eat this meal, he is speaking to you saying, you are my people. And he's not just reaching back into the past. He's reaching to the very end of the age and he is drawing that into the present. He's putting that in your hearts and he's applying it today saying, I will keep my promises. I will return. I am coming. And when I come, I will do what I have always done. And I will be faithful to what I have promised. And the goodness of God through this meal 
is that he promises to return. The goodness of this meal is he promises that all of your sins have been forgiven. The goodness of this meal is that God is saying, I am faithful to my promises. I always have been and I always will be. And therefore what he does is he invites you and me to come and to do one thing, to feast upon him as we do this in remembrance of Jesus. Let's pray.